0: This is Downtown The Podcast, episode 11. Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell. I even make note last week that we were in double digits in podcasts. It's crazy. Where does the time go, Kerry? It has just been flying. We have a lot of fun putting these together every week. All part of our downtown show that airs... Weekday afternoons, 4 to 6 Eastern Time, WZON in Bangor, WKIT-HD3. You can also download the WZON app to hear the daily show or get streaming audio at uh, WZON.com, Zoneradio.com. What is it again? WZONAM.com. Streaming audio available at WZONAM.com and at DowntownWithRichKimble.com or download the WZON app. This week... We're talking Beatles on the show uh, with a couple of experts, authors Mark Lewison and Rob Sheffield. will talk about a band that continues to make an impact in the music world more than 50 years since their debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. We remind you, downtown the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Our first guest on the podcast this week is author Mark Lewison, who has written an incredibly comprehensive look at just the first few years of The Beatles' existence. It's called Tune In, The Beatles, All These Years. We had a chance to join Mark or have Mark join us from London to talk about his incredible research into The Beatles. My goodness, uh, the first volume of your your trilogy, uh, All These Years, Volume 1, Tune In, was so incredible, so thoroughly researched, and now... Uh, an extended special edition. Uh, What kind of details might we look for as uh, we read even more from the early years of the Beatles? Well, uh, that's a good question. The book is, um, I originally
1: wrote this book uh, with 780,000 words, which is a hell of a lot of words. (laughs) And I had to trim it down for the mass market edition. So the book that most people have is actually abridged. They may not have realized it because it was done quite deftly, but it is actually abridged. So now the full Everything I Wrote edition is going to be fully available in the States for the first time. And it just has more levels and layers of context and color, Um, more about their family backgrounds, more about their childhoods and teenage years, more about rock and roll and rhythm and blues and the music they were listening to more about the music business, more about Brian Epstein and George Martin in particular. Um, That's the Beatles manager and the Beatles producer, of course. So just more of everything. Um, I mean, the real challenge for me was getting that down to about half the size for the abridged edition. But I managed to do it in such a way that it left no gaps. But when you see this book, the full edition, then you will realize that actually quite a lot of it was cut out.
0: There have been so many books written about the Beatles, but you've said before, and I I would agree, there's never been until this volume, a truly comprehensive biography of the band that really looks at it from several different perspectives. Why why was it important for you to tell this story and to tell it in, in such an incredibly thorough way?
1: Well, the earliest biography of the Beatles came out in 1968 by Hunter Davis. That's the authorised book. And and in its time, it was it was a seminal work. And that's now almost 50 years ago, 50 years next year. There haven't been that many biographies of the Beatles since then. There have been maybe a handful. Most books on the Beatles are other kinds of books, books that look at their records or their photographs or their art or whatever it might be. But in terms of biographical work, and in particular, as I see it, in terms of writing the Beatles as a history, it's really not been done. Certainly not to the extent that I always believed it ought to be done. I said that the Hunter Davis book is 50 years old. That is proof, if any were needed, that the Beatles are still extremely important We recognize now more than ever before their contribution to our culture, and we revere them as much now if not before for the extraordinary qualities in their work and in their personalities and so on. They really were responsible for making pop music, rock music, whatever you want to call it, for actually beginning its maturity from its earliest days when it was just this kind of teenage thing. The Beatles, in a sense, helped elevate it to the... I hesitate to call it art form, but it is. It's is exactly what it actually is. So they are worthy of proper study. And it's important, in my view, that the history is actually got right while it's still possible to do it. Because if it's not got right now, it will very likely be wrong forever. And I don't want to go to my grave knowing I, knowing that and knowing I could have done something about it but didn't. So this is my chance to try to ensure that we appreciate the Beatles in the future long after we're all gone for the best of reasons and that anybody studying them actually gets it right.
0: And now, is it true that uh, George Harrison once, I guess, confronted maybe too strong a word, but challenged you uh, because you weren't present and, and perhaps couldn't couldn't offer an accurate history simply because you were not there?
1: Yes, he did. He did. He actually he said it to my face, and then he said it in another circumstance that was actually meaning me, but looking across the room at me. <laughs> um, yeah, he did say that. That was his view. You you weren't there, so how could you know? Or you weren't there, how could you know? <laughs> and uh, that's my impression. It was very good. I, thank you. The thing is. If biography was only written by people who were actually witness to events, there would barely be any biographies on the shelf. There is the role, a role for biographers and certainly for historians to look at a subject as thoroughly as possible to use every possible uh, piece of information or eyewitness to to get it right. But there is always that worry, and George was correct to point it out, there is always the worry that if um, someone who wasn't present writes about events and they may not be getting it entirely right but I am doing all that I can I'm spending 30 years on this trilogy of books to get it as right as possible and that comes on top of many previous years of doing research so though I respect and understand George's position um it, I I I I think I'm actually honoring the Beatles and honoring his memory by doing all I can to ensure that anyone who's trying to study his life and his work actually does have a chance to get it more right than usual. So um, if George is listening from wherever he might be (laughs) now, then that's my message.
0: We're talking with Mark Lewison, a Beatles biographer, the author of uh, All These Years, Volume 1. Tune in. And one of the many things I I learned from Volume 1 is that much of what we think we know about the Beatles are stories that have been told and retold, but but may not be accurate. And I, I've heard you say in interviews before that you did not set out to debunk any myths, but the meticulous research has revealed some things. And one of them is the story of uh, the Beatles coming together with George Martin, and perhaps not being what we've heard. Could you talk about that and the role of a man by the name of Kim Bennett?
1: Ah, oh, that's a good question. Yeah. You see, the Beatles story has been told very, very often. People think they know it, but actually they don't know it because things got either intentionally or unintentionally sewn into the fabric of this story a very long time ago. And all they've done, all the books that have been published since have done is actually cement those things further and further into truth, but they're not true. I wasn't trying, as you just said, to set out and disprove myths, but merely by getting the story as right as possible and researching it much better than it's, or deeper than it's been researched before, the myths do tend to fall away. In the case of the Beatles getting their all-important record contract, if this hadn't have happened, we wouldn't know who they were. If they hadn't have started to make records, we wouldn't be talking about them now. That all happened really as a result of George Martin being assigned the Beatles Um, For various reasons, which I do go into in in complete thoroughness in the book, he was kind of told to give them a recording contract by uh, a more senior level of management within EMI Records in London for whom he was working. So he didn't sign them thinking they were great. He actually signed them without even meeting them. But the, the, the beauty of the fact that it, this was George Martin and they were the Beatles is that when he met them, he recognised straight away that actually these people were going to be interesting to work with. They had not so much at that point their music that impressed him, but their personalities and their sense of humour and their unconventionality, if there is such a word. It's so easy now to forget, but before the Beatles, there wasn't really anybody else like the Beatles. There were very few, if any, three uh, rock bands with three guitars and drums, and three of them at the front line singing, and in particular, two of them writing the songs. This was simply not done. It became the way that it would always be done, but at that time, it wasn't done. It was the Beatles who created that. So when George Martin met them, he, was, he recognized straight away that they weren't usual. They were unusual. They were different from the rest. Uh, and within months of meeting them or, or having been assigned to meet them and to sign them, he realized that they were unlike anybody else and they recorded what would be their first number one single, Please Please Me. They gelled immediately. They were, he was the right man for them and they were the right group for him. But initially, it was extraordinarily extraordinary piece of luck that they fell into each other's arms.
0: And in many ways, Mark, also an extraordinary piece of luck that they made it to the point where they could take both the uh, United Kingdom and the United States by storm, because I, I was surprised to learn that along the way, uh, there, were some, there were some times Well, they did break up on a couple of occasions, and there were ample opportunities for the whole thing to dissolve.
1: There were. I mean, the Beatles always had this thing about something will turn up, but there were moments along the way when it really didn't look like they would have any kind of breakthrough. Um, and also, the Beatles themselves, the restlessness that they always had within their within their artistry, if you like, which is one of the things that propelled the. Extraordinarily fast progression of their musical sound once they were making records. That restlessness was always there. So they were never going to do anything for any one time. People say, when did the Beatles begin to break up? And my kind of, it sounds like a kind of smart-ass answer, but (laughs) my answer is really that they began to break up the moment they got together because those guys were never going to do any one thing forever because it was within their DNA that they always wanted to move on and keep trying something else. And eventually that would encourage them to be doing different things entirely. Now, I realize I didn't answer the previous Bit of your question about the man called Kim Bennett, so I will just quickly go yes. back and add the fact that Kim Bennett was a man in London about whom no one really, apart from readers of this book, will will have any idea of who he was. Uh, he has now died, but I had the privilege of interviewing him about mm, about twelve years ago now for this book, and he was the one man in London <clears throat> who believed in the Beatles. Um, when nobody else was he was their first believer actually he was just one of those doggy personalities who worked in the music publishing business Um, and it was through his perseverance that a the Beatles got their contract with George Martin and b that their first record Love Me Do got into the charts and stayed there because he was the one who kind of made sure that it got some radio airplay and things like that he went to extraordinary lengths the Beatles never met him I don't think unless they've read this book, I don't think they've even heard of him Um, and nor is anybody else who thinks they know the Beacles until they read this book, because without Kim Bennett, as so often happens, he was the cog in the chain. And if you remove him from the chain, then the whole thing falls apart
0: you've said in the past that volume 1 is very much a liverpool story uh, how much impact did that upbringing in post-war liverpool have uh, obviously on on the guys as individuals but on the band and its its approach to music
1: oh, yeah, it was very significant um they grew they the beatles were all war babies and liver, and war in liverpool was was um was, was devastating because it was a target for the Luftwaffe bombers from Germany. Uh, they they tried actually to obliterate Liverpool off the map. It was one of the most important ports and docks in the British Empire, and it was uh, a major target for them. And so although the four Beatles as war babies lived to see peace, the city as a whole, the one that they grew up in, was devastated. It was, it was like a, a, well, it was a war zone. Um, And they grew up in uh, amid rationing and bomb sites everywhere and uh, a, a lot of poverty. The Beatles themselves were not particularly from poor families, but um, no one there had much money. And it shaped the, 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 the character of the people in that city, um, but it, it didn't quench it. And in fact, it made them very resilient. Uh, And Liverpool has always been a musical city. It is to this day, principally because of its strong Irish heritage. And the Beatles themselves are three of them of, of the four have Irish backgrounds and they grew up in a musical city. And it happened to be once the late 50s rolled around the only place in the world. And I mean the world, even including America, that had a real thriving rock and roll scene with live groups playing every night in different halls and different ballrooms and so on. It's sufficient eventually for the place to have its own music paper called Mersey Beat. No one else was paying any attention to what was going on there. But within Liverpool, there was a lot of competition. And the Beatles had competition, but very quickly rose to the top. Um, As soon as they had their first trip to Hamburg in Germany and came back to Liverpool, they were the best. Um, And they reached the top in Liverpool pretty quickly after that, but then hit the ceiling and couldn't really go anywhere else until they got Brian Epstein as their manager. And he was the one who got them out of Liverpool and into London and then into the whole of the UK and then eventually, of course, the world.
0: Well, Volume 1 gets us through 1962. I I know the research has been going on for for years and years into the rest of the story. Uh, Mm. Do you have a target date for Volume 2?
1: I've got a target date. I mean, I, I people often ask me when the next book is coming out, and, and I always say, which is true, that I'm aiming for 2020. Um, however, I'm not sure that I'm going to hit it. It's still my aim, but it's, it's looming large now, being that we're coming close to 2018. Uh, I, I have a feeling I'm not going to get it out in 2020, but I'm not dragging my heels on this, because after Volume 2, I've then got Volume 3 to write um and i i think it's looking likely that by the time this project is completely done i will have spent the best part of 30 years on it and it is all i do i I have nothing else to do it is my job and i'm privileged to be the one who is spending pretty much a life writing about the beatles um but um i'd like to get it finished and get it out so no one should think i'm just dragging my heels but it is a massive task it really is an absolutely massive task and I'm still pretty much functioning alone and I do all my own research and all my own writing. Uh, and it's a multifaceted book because in essence the three books together are like a very comprehensive history of the 1960s and not just in Liverpool, not just in London or even Britain but America too and indeed the rest of the world. So. It's a it's a complex book to write, but um, I'm not complaining about that, but it is taking time.
0: It's Mark Lewison here on Downtown the Podcast. When we come back, Rolling Stone music journalist and critic Rob Sheffield discusses his book, Dreaming the Beatles. First, this word from Cross Insurance.
1: Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We're proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
0: Five years ago, a couple of friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing, and Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sonnenschein and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S, at your favorite restaurant or bar. Work hard, play hard, be nice. German-style beer from the woods of Maine. We continue with more Beatles talk here on Downtown the Podcast. A conversation with music journalist Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone came out with a wonderful book last summer and a different take on the band entitled Dreaming the Beatles. You have a theory, and I think it's a pretty good one, that everything John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote was based primarily on, as you put it, looking for the right girl, looking for any girl to sing to.
2: Yeah, it's funny that they met and they were just, you know, 15, 16-year-old boys, very young. They're the only songwriters in their town. They've been through this really private heartbreak that they have in common. And it's amazing that from the beginning they communicate to each other this incredibly deep and complex friendship, and they communicate to each other by writing songs about girls. That's all they want to do.
0: Now, and you say this in the book as well, in the preface to it, and, and uh, look, I'm a big Beatles guy. I read uh, so many of the Beatles books that come out. Why another Beatles book? But that that's answered pretty early. You've got a very fresh take and a different perspective on the Beatles. And one of the things I like is that uh, it's not a primer on the Beatles. You assume that the reader's got a certain level of knowledge going in.
2: Well, yeah, There's there's the basic story that we all know and love, and that's Really why I wanted to write this book was a book that's not just retelling the story of the Beatles in the 60s, but I really wanted to look at the Beatles of the 80s and the Beatles of the 70s and the Beatles of the 90s and the Beatles of today. I mean, the really strange thing about the Beatles, in many ways, the strangest thing is that that they're still the most popular band in the world now and that they're more popular now than they were when they broke up nearly 50 years ago.
0: Yeah, and I I love uh, uh, something you write in the book is that our Beatles have outlasted theirs.
2: Yeah, it's really funny when you see little kids listen to the Beatles for the first time and you see them freak out and they come to it with no baggage and no preconceptions about what they're supposed to like, but they just hear it. And there's something elemental in the sound of these voices and 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 the songs that just almost has an instantaneous rush.
0: Uh, their album one, their collection of number one songs, the best selling album of the 21st century, even though, as you point out, Probably everybody who bought it had several copies of those songs already. <laughs> and these guys, they're they're not certainly not of their own time anymore. they're I get timeless, I guess, is the word for it.
2: Absolutely timeless. And and it's funny now that, you know, that one that their new version of Sgt. Pepper just debuted at, at the top of the charts, which is really crazy when you think of it. This album that's been incredibly famous already for fifty years. I mean, it's not like Anybody didn't know about Sgt. Pepper, and it's just hearing about it for the first time this week. But something about the allure of this music, we always hear new things in it, and we always want to hear new things in it.
0: Everybody's Beatles story is different, and uh, you explain that yours begins uh, with the movie Help. Can you tell that story a little
2: bit? Yeah, I was a little kid in the 70s, and I was watching the movie Help on TV, and I don't know what you think about Help. I, I still love that movie. It's 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 the silliest Beatles movie. And the Beatles themselves, they they made fun of it because they thought it thought it was just kind of a cartoonish kitty movie. But I saw that on uh, on Channel fifty six in Boston when <laughs> I was a little kid in the seventies, and uh, I was watching it. I'm sitting there with my grandmother and watching it, the opening scene. You see the Beatles singing the song Help, and it's just the four of them and their turtlenecks and their guitars. And they're singing this incredibly emotional song that's got a lot of sad lyrics, but yet there's something happy about hearing those voices spilling out together. And it it just really fried my brain. And I just thought, wow, this is what adulthood is like. This is what having friends is like. (laughs) This is what music is like. Sign me up for all of this.
0: (laughs) Uh, You mentioned, too, uh, you listen to albums at the Milton Public Library. Now, off the Beatles for a moment here, because I'm wondering if we had the same experience where were of a similar age. Uh, you mentioned that you were perusing some album covers. You mentioned Linda Ronstadt, and so I'm assuming, like me, you had a great affection for the cover of her Hasten Down the Wind album.
2: I think that's my favorite. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to pick favorite Linda Ronstadt album covers, but it's kind—it's of, hard to top that one.
0: Yeah, if you're a little younger, maybe it's her uh, with the roller skating gear on.
2: <laughs> I love that one, too. But, uh, yeah, and it's funny that it was... Uh, sort of a golden age of Linda Ronstadt album cover. <laughs> I
0: have no question about that. We're talking with Rob Sheffield, author of Dreaming the Beatles. Uh, you make some bold statements in the book. I love them all, including this one that's hard to argue with. You say that you believe, I Saw Her Standing There, is the best first song on a debut album ever.
2: Yeah, it's amazing how many, how many bands have done that thing that the Beatles did of where you're putting out your first album and you make the first song on it. A real mission statement. And, you know, if, if the only thing you knew of the Beatles is hearing the first song on their first record, I saw her standing there, you would still have a pretty good idea of just how aggressive they were, how inventive they were, how ambitious they were, just how enthusiastic they were. And it's funny that, you know, there's so many other contenders for that crowd. I mean, Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle, the first song on Appetite for Destruction, is pretty great. And N.W.A., Straight of Compton, the first song on their debut album, it's pretty great. But... For my money, I saw her standing there. It tops them all. It's, it's a mission statement right from the beginning.
0: And as you mentioned, too, the Beatles, as they grew and they progressed, uh, the songs got got more complicated and dealt with with weightier issues, although often about girls, later on about women. But I, I loved uh, you talking about the fact that uh, you, you were hearing about adult relationships and, and learning about them in many ways from these four guys.
2: Yeah, long before I ever had one in real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember hearing that song I, when I was a little kid in the 70s. I had the Blue Album. Do you remember the Blue I Album? I
0: do. The Blue and the Red Album, yeah. Yeah,
2: those were formative for me. And uh, there's this great song on the Blue Album. It was never a hit, but I've always been so glad this, al- this song was on the album. Very late song from the Let It Be sessions, uh, Don't Let Me Down. And just this incredibly beautiful and, you know, a very adult sounding song. And I remember hearing this, you know, and I'm a little kid and, and I'm thinking this is really strange to hear this adult man singing about you know being in love with this woman and he's not singing in a teen romance kind of way he's singing about adult love where he's afraid of you know where it might go and and has his hopes up for where it might go and just that beautiful kind of sentiment that it's not a sad song but it's a serious song and it songs like that really changed the way i thought about the world
0: with the re-release of sergeant pepper and all the recognition of that the talk uh, comes back again about being the greatest album of all time and that's certainly a very subjective thing revolver gets a lot of mention rubber soul for you if if i'm i think i'm correct on this you believe that revolver is
2: the better album but you like rubber soul better yeah. That's just a personal favorite. It's just it's the emotional favorite for me. Rubber soul, it's also rubber soul is the one with the best singing. If if what you're mainly into is hearing the Beatles sing together, their best singing is on Rubber Soul. And and something I love is that Paul's backup vocals on John songs, the John's backup vocals on Paul's songs, everybody is singing at the top of their game. And Rubber Soul has the funniest songs and the saddest songs. And yeah, I just love that one to pieces. And I can recognize, you know, my conscience informs me that yeah revolver is probably a greater artistic achievement and so is the white album but you know when push comes to shove if i could only listen to one for the rest of my life it'd be rubber soul i mean if you, if you catch me in the right mood i'll even defend michelle <laughs> i love that song <laughs> well and rubber soul
0: maybe is uh, contains songs about the most complicated women you'll hear about in beatles songs
2: yeah, it's really funny that when you know, I was eight years old or nine years old and hearing Norwegian Wood for the first time, and I thought, well, this is very mysterious. What an interesting kind of woman in this song. And something I love is that you know, John, who I'm listening to it, and he's the grown up in the song, and he's as confused by this woman as I am. He's like, yeah, I don't know what she meant when she said to sit down and she didn't have a chair. And the, the girl is so confident and so poised. And and he's just stumbling and stammering and and feeling foolish. And There's something really beautiful about those songs in Rubber Soul, and amazing to think that they were written by such young guys.
0: We're talking with Rob Sheffield. His book is entitled Dreaming the Beatles, and and I love the the latter chapters of the book when you talk about the guys individually. And and Ringo, Ringo comes across as, uh, I guess, what in sports we would call the glue guy. Uh, He's the (laughs) one who can, uh, he can keep everybody together. He can handle the big personalities, and everybody else in the band loves him.
2: Absolutely. And, and, you know, you think about people say, you know, Ringo was a good drummer or he wasn't good enough to be in the Beatles. I think he was a great drummer. But even more than that, he was somebody who, like you said, was the glue guy for the others. And, and, you know, they loved being around him. And they knew that as long as Ringo was playing drums, things were going to turn out well. So just the impact he had on the rest of them. There's a great moment I love. We, we were talking a minute ago about the song Don't Let Me Down. And there's a great uh, version of that song in the uh, in the get back sessions where you know john is is doing the song with the rest of the band and and he says to ringo to to give him a big smash on the cymbals before before the song starts and he says you yeah, give me a big sh on the cymbal give me the courage to come screaming in <laughs> and i just love that that's that really kind of sums up you know john was able to sing such a raw and open and honest song because he knew that ringo would be there giving him the courage to come screaming in Uh, George comes across, as he always does, as a a
0: very interesting, a very conflicted guy. Uh, George is your wife's favorite Beatle, is that right?
2: Yeah, she is madly in love with George.
0: (laughs) And and you say that, and you're right here, he
2: wrote great songs about hating being a Beatle. It's really strange when you think of uh, how fast George soured on being a Beatle, and that, you know, it's only like 1966. He hasn't been a Beatle very long, but he's already, he said, I'm putting my foot down, I'm never touring again, this is done. And the other Beatles were at least open to the idea. George was the one who insisted that they just never tour again. And when you think of the songs that he wrote about being a Beatle, like Blue Jay Way, which is a song I love on the the Magical Mystery Tour record. And it's really funny that this is a song by a guy who's really sick of being a Beatle. And he's like, please, I've been here too long. Let me out of here. (laughs) And uh, there's something really beautiful about that.
0: And yet, late in his solo career, he was certainly not above uh, using that Beatle notoriety.
2: Yeah, he, you know, like the other four Beatles, they all had moments in their post-Beatle life where, where they felt, okay, we're adults now; we're in, we're in control of our lives; we're we're independent. We really wish the world would move on and let us move on with our lives. And, and for some reason, that they were still drawn back to this adolescent friendship that they had and that the rest of the world was still drawn to that friendship was something that for all of them at different moments was just very perplexing. I mean, you think, I mean, you know, for you or me to think about the people that, you know, you're friends with when you're 16 or 17, and then think about being chained to those people <laughs> for life. is really kind of a scary idea. So is the world divided into people who are either Paul's or John's? I think so. I mean, most of us are a little of both, but it's funny that in any kind of friendship, there's the one who's responsible and takes care of things, and makes the restaurant reservation, and makes sure that the car is filled with gas, and you know, takes care of business. And, and then there's the other one who's more impulsive and more spontaneous, and and just more freewheeling. And and, it, you know, for, it's it's funny that in any relationship, you kind of automatically know whether you're the John or you're the Paul.
0: Well, and I and I love you. You talk about late in their career uh, when. John and Yoko went out and recorded Two Virgins after they've, they've dumped on Paul, but they need somebody to write the the forward for the album, and, and they, they go to Paul. And then when John's off on his last weekend, who does Yoko dispatch to bring him back? But Paul, he's the guy who was always
2: there for everybody. And
0: yet, as you point out, he's the only Beatle that people seem to hate.
2: Yeah, it's really funny to me uh, over the course of the years of being a Beatle fan that you know people— For better or worse, people will argue about Ringo and people will argue about George and people will argue about John. But for the most part, people are really kind of settled in those Beatles as they're in their roles. And Paul is the one that people just differ really wildly about. Some people just love Paul. Some people just hate Paul, which sounds crazy to me. But it's funny that for me, as a, you know, I'm, gotta be honest, I'm a pro Paul partisan. I am, I'm strongly pro Paul. And it's funny for me in talking about the Beatles how much. Paul is really the one that people violently disagree about. Yeah, and you talk about
0: uh, seeing him in concert, and I had a similar experience seeing him at Fenway a few years back, and the thought was, three hours in, why is this guy working so
2: hard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He could phone it in, and he just doesn't. I mean, it, uh, boy, I'm still sad I missed that Fenway show. That's a that's a sore spot with me, my friend. That's That still agonizes me. I was really sorry to miss that one. I saw him last summer and yeah, he plays for three hours. He does 40 songs or something like that. He ends by doing side two of Abbey Road all the way through. And you just think, you know, he could phone it in, but you know, he's 75. He's still full of energy, full of enthusiasm because he just loves doing this, and, and he just he's so passionate about this music, and it's really contagious, and it's really fun to see its impact on an audience, an audience with all different generations and all different age groups and all different cultures and all different personality types, just everybody coming together for Paul.
0: And you talk about your your love for Rubber Soul. I love the album. I, I still think Revolver is the best, and yet I've got a real soft place in my heart for Abbey Road, and maybe it's because of the circumstances around it that they, they decided to give it one last try to be the band they used to be
2: yeah there's something really beautiful about that that you know that of course you know for for those of us who grew up in in the 70s and 80s we kind of had the narrative in our head that that there's abbey road and then there's let it be as the last album but it's really moving to think of how you know they recorded let it be the sessions were disaster everybody was at each other's throats and with abbey road that's they said let's not go out like that let's go out with a great album that's worthy of of our shared history. And it's really beautiful that they were able to rally that old team spirit for that.
0: And you opened the book in your prelude with a wonderful story. I think that sets a great tone. Uh, can you, can you tell the story of that rooftop concert and and Paul McCartney's comment to most Star.
2: I just, I love that, that at the end of, of get back, uh, you know, they're doing the song on the roof and, and it ends with, you know, a little bit of laughter from the crew that's there. And, and John goes into his famous joke. He said, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the band and myself and I I hope we passed the audition. <laughs> and uh and yet something really easy to overlook is you hear Paul McCartney say, "Thanks, mo And it's really kind of amazing he's talking to mo Starr, who is Maureen Starr, who is Ringo's wife. And she is the Beatle wife who was originally a Beatle fan. She was a teenage girl he used to go see them at, at the Cavern Club in in Liverpool. And, you know, that's how she first met the, the band was she was one of the girls in the audience. The first time she ever talked to Ringo, she was knocking on the window of his car to ask him for an autograph and that she crossed the line from from a fan mm. to a member of the inner circle. But it's really moving to think that it's this confused moment. It's this tense moment. It's it's this this really scary moment, really, for all four Beatles to, to think about looking at the end of the line. And Paul just sees Maureen Starr clapping and he remembers why they're doing this. It, it, it's really kind of beautiful that, you know, he sees her somebody who's actually having a good time. Who's always been the sort of supportive girl fan who the Beatles have always depended on. And that he makes that moment all about her is really beautiful to me.
0: Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone, the author of Dreaming the Beatles, joining us here on downtown the podcast. Our thanks to Rob as well as author Mark Lewis. Always fun to talk Beatles here on the podcast or on Downtown the Radio Show. We remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine, and by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast.